Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you so much for joining us today. Once again, I have Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos on the line with me. Eric, how do we find you this fine day? Oh, we find myself quite good, actually. It seems very spring-like here in southwest Virginia, so uh, uh, I'm very thankful to Greta for helping to put the climate into crisis. <laughs> well, you know, what, what would we do without her? Did she get her Nobel Prize yet? Oh, I, you know, it makes my teeth hurt so much sometimes I think they're going to fall out of my head that I, I sometimes just shun even reading about it. Well, I, I have to say, you know, the fact that she was nominated, okay, I get it, it's a political statement, but it takes me back to when uh, Barack Obama received his Nobel Prize and somebody who was thinking cleverly put up on uh, the marquee of the local oil change place, free Nobel Prize with oil change. <laughs> well, and let's not forget that the Nobel Prize uh, was the brainchild of the guy who invented dynamite, so. Nice. <laughs> So you had a, you had a column recently that really caught my attention in that it was about who's a hero. And yeah. and I'm, I'm going to let you set the stage for it. But I have a very tangible example of um, hero worship that I have been watching play out here in my locale for the last week or so. But tell me what to, what prompted you to to put pen to paper, so to speak, about who's a hero? Well, you know, we, there's this, it's another example of this cognitive dissonance. And in this case, um, it's this idea that uh, anybody who wears a government outfit uh, as a, a law enforcement official is a hero, you know, and, and, and we're supposed to genuflect and, and worship these guys. But at the same time, they're constantly talking about fearing for their safety. And even to the extent of blowing people away because they feared for their safety. But I remember when I was in elementary school and I learned the definition of a hero, and my understanding has always been that a hero is somebody who puts their own safety at risk for the sake of other people's. So it's exactly the opposite of this whole officer safety meme slash trope or whatever you want to call it. Well, and it's it's very interesting, too, how how uh, heroism comes out in, in various ways. Case in point, uh, a, a local municipality near where I live in the Salt Lake area, uh, recently one of their police dogs was killed by a fugitive who was being apprehended on a federal warrant. And, you know, I, I can't tell you the name of the fugitive who was killed. I, I think that was a secondary thing. Well, the fugitive was killed, but... Oh, this dog. You know, the, the news media and, and even the police department and the community have gone absolutely nuts over the death of this animal. And I'm not trying to minimize that, yeah, that's sad that it died, but um, we're seeing the trappings of of an old uh, Soviet military funeral, you know, when it comes to laying this dog to rest. Well, and again, another example of cognitive dissonance, uh, we've had how many videos and how many incidents of cops who feared for their safety blowing away somebody else's dog. And, of course, that dog doesn't get the North Korean-style state funeral with the hair-pulling and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth. No, and, and it, you know, I know I'm treading on thin ice by, by even saying this, but it's one thing to say, oh, that's sad. You know, this service animal was mm-hmm. out there, you know, doing its job and, and lost its life. But uh, the, there, there is. The, the theatrics are, are on a par with a, with a North Korean deer leader's funeral. It's, it's, it's arguably psychotic. That, that people would get that worked up uh, about a person they don't even know or an animal. You know, it's, it's crazy. I can see being sad about uh, your, your family member, your friend, somebody that you knew personally, 
but this this over the top emoting um, over over a state official uh, is it's bizarre and it's unsettling. You know, you, I put a video of the North Korean state funeral for I forget whether he's the dear leader or the great leader or whichever leader he was. And you can see these people literally like like stomping their feet and and rending their hair uh, at, at the wow. death of this tyrant. And it's it's you know it, it, you can't imagine anything more unsettling than that. I, at least I can't. Well, and and you and I are both uh, we're we're likely running afoul of of a lot of people's uh, uh, sense of comfort in the fact mm-hmm. that uh, we're, we're suggesting that heroism maybe involves something more than putting on a uniform and showing up for work. Sure, and heroes don't get paid. You know, a hero is the guy who's driving along and he sees a car run off the road and hit a tree and a fire starts, and he stops and at risk to himself uh, and without being paid, rushes to that car and pulls those people out of the car um, despite the, the potential threat to his safety. That's my idea of a hero, not somebody who has a Batman belt and body armor and guns and, and lurks behind a tree to give you a ticket for speeding. Right. Well, it's it used to be that uh, the definition of doing something heroic was you did something that was above and beyond, that, that was truly extraordinary. And, and yet we kind of lowered that definition down. And, and it's it's disturbing because with it comes a, a sort of embrace of authoritarianism. Well, yeah, it's disturbing because there's an analog. You know, if you look at North Korea, if you look at the old Soviet Union, uh, if you look at uh, Germany under the Nazis, they also had this same idea of venerating the state's enforcers, its soldiers, its secret police, as heroes. Uh, in the old Soviet Union, they literally had an award for it. It was called Hero of the Soviet Union. So, you know, if you don't want to live in a country like the Soviet Union or North Korea uh, or Nazi Germany, stop thinking that people who have guns and who are the government, uh, government's enforcers are heroes. There's nothing heroic about uh, the government enforcing its, its decrees on the populace. Something you pointed out, too, in your column that I, I, I remember distinctly having conversations with some of the old school cops that I met as I was growing up. And you're right. There was a time when, when these officers considered themselves peace officers first and foremost, and they actually prided themselves on never having to pull their gun during an entire career. Sure. Force was a last resort, and it was understood both uh, by the cops and by the general public that a cop had to be sorely provoked and literally uh, facing a mortal threat um, uh, before he would pull out his his service weapon and and use it uh, to to prevent something from happening. It's the same standard that um, that remains in force today for people like you and I uh, who have a concealed handgun permit. You know this as well as I do. I'm sure uh, we were advised very very stentoriously when we got our permits that look. If you ever uh, produce that gun and point it at somebody, uh, much less use it, you had better be able to produce very strong evidence that your life was in imminent danger. You can't just say, I feared for my safety and shoot people. Right. Well, if you're clothed in the authority of the state, you can say that. But but uh, yes. no, you and I are held to a different standard. Right. And it's far from heroic. Well, you know, if you haven't got the guts to, to put your own self in a little bit of danger and feel a little bit of fear... Uh, and and not react to it with with you know multiple magazine fire. You're in the wrong profession. Maybe you should do something else. I I, I want to say this in fairness because I do have some friends who who are members of law enforcement, who uh, sometimes the heroic thing that they do is they don't act like 
RoboCop. In other words, they they yep. use their discretion. And and when it's yep. possible to resolve a situation without arresting somebody or without writing them a ticket, that's what they choose to do. Not surprisingly, though, that actually casts a bit of suspicion on them, either from their superiors or sometimes from their peers, that they're not gung ho enough. Well, of course. And we go back to uh, their own term for themselves, which is law enforcement. That's the new term, right? And what does that mean? It means we enforce the laws. We don't use our judgment. Uh, we, we don't uh, examine a given law for its rightness or wrongness or its morality or its immorality. Our job is to enforce the law like a mindless RoboCop, right? Right. Well, and, and, and again, in, in fairness, I'm just trying to I, I don't want people to get the impression, boy, you and Eric are really hating on the cops this morning. But mm-hmm. uh, but in, in reality, they may do something heroic in the course of their their mm-hmm. work, but simply going out there and making people do what the state has dictated they must do. Um, that doesn't meet the definition of hero. At least that's that's what I got from your, your article. No, and I'll be very explicit. Uh, I, I do hate on law enforcement. I don't like the idea of law enforcement. I very much like the idea of peacekeeping. You know, I like the idea of, of protecting innocent people uh, from physical harm and from, from uh, damage to their property. I do not like the idea of law enforcement. The NKVD were law enforcers. Uh, the, the Gestapo enforced laws. The East German Stasi enforced laws. No, I, I'm not a fan of law enforcement. But Eric, if not for them, people might not buckle up. Or they might cross the right. street without, uh, without the light telling them that it was time to do so. It would be chaos. Well, that's just my point. That's just my point. That is, the, that is the antithesis of peacekeeping. A guy, you may not agree with somebody's decision to, uh, to drive around without a seatbelt, but they present no threat to you, uh, your person or your property. If they get hurt, they hurt themselves, and therefore it's no business of the peacekeeper whether a person is wearing a seatbelt or uh, riding a bicycle without a helmet. Uh, the, the purpose of peacekeeping is to deal with people who attack other people, who threaten them with violence, who violate their property, and so on. That's what we need to get back to, not, not more law enforcing. we got to go to break here in just a second, but you mentioned bicycles. I have to mention this. I did see something come up on Twitter yesterday. A girl had posted a video she had taken while she was out riding her bike in New York City. Three cops ticketing a cyclist for not riding in the bicycle lane. When they saw her filming, mm-hmm. guess what they did? They came over and gave her a ticket for not having a bell on her bicycle. Yep. Wow. Served and protected. Yep, this, this <laughs> penny t- petty tyranny. Now, mind you, too, if she, had, if she had resisted in any way, guns would have been drawn on her for that. Oh, without a doubt. Well, we've got to take a quick break here. Eric Peters is my guest. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. We are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. My guest is Eric Peters from epautos.com. And uh, Eric, I I noticed uh, uh, you had written something about uh, brine baths uh, pertaining to to salting of the roads. I mean, look, the Romans used to salt the fields of their enemies, right, to make sure they couldn't grow crops. Uh, Let's let's talk about this practice of putting salt or a salt wash on the roads and what that means in in terms of uh, some of the unforeseen blessings it might be providing us. Well, it's a new thing. You know, they, they've been putting salt on the roads for oh, eons, generations anyway, but it used to be uh, particle salt, you know, like the kind that you actually would use to season your food with. And, and generally, they would only start applying the salt when it actually began to snow. 
This new thing is a pretreatment, as they style it, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have seen it. Uh, it'll be a perfectly sunny day. There won't be a single flake on the ground. However, um, they, they will run these brine trucks that will pour and douse and water down the, the road with this, this salty brine. And, uh, and if you drive through it, it is exactly like what the car companies use to test the corrosion protection of brand new cars on an accelerated basis. They literally will run the car through a salt bath and see what the effect is. Only now, our cars, yours and mine, are being the guinea pigs for this salt bath, uh, even when it doesn't snow. Interesting. I, you know, living, living in and around the Salt Lake City area, of course, road salt has been a fact of life as long as I can remember because we have such a ready supply of it. But it always came yep. after the fact. It was only after a good snow, mm-hmm. once they'd plowed, then they yep. would salt the roads to keep the icing down. I've never heard of this uh, pre-storm treatment or pre-treatment of the mm-hmm. road. Yeah, well, it's the, it's the latest fad, and there are probably a couple of reasons driving it. Uh, one is, of course, the safety cult, because you can't be too safe, and if there's a cloud in the sky and it might possibly snow, they're going to dump that brine on the roads just to be safe. You never can tell. Right. And it's also another make-work project. Uh, you know, this whole thing about um, federal or federal or state or any bureaucracy, if it has a budget for a given calendar year and it uses that budget to buy, let's say, salt, and you have a, a fairly warm winter and they don't use as much salt, come the next budget appropriation, they might not get the same amount of money. So, you know, their their object is to burn through everything that they've got in order to get at least that much for the next budget cycle. And this helps them to do that because they can just dump that stuff on the road whenever the weather guy says, well, there's a chance you might get a light dusting on Thursday, which is what they just did here a couple of weeks ago. And, and let's talk again about what are, what are some of the effects on, on the automobile. I mean, people are saying, well, hey, at least I'm not driving on slick roads. That's great. But uh, tell me yeah. about what, what this salt brine is doing to your car as you drive through it. Well, it rusts it out, and it rusts it out much more aggressively because it's literally a liquid. It's a salt bath. So you drive through this. It's like driving through, uh, driving around when it, it's just we just had a downpour and the roads are soaked, and the action of your tires is 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 pushing, is spraying that liquid uh, salt uh, into every nook and cranny of the underside of your car, where it will begin to corrode and eat away at the metal and result in rust damage. And eventually, your car will be destroyed by the rust and probably prematurely. You know, it won't last as long uh, as it would have otherwise, and you'll have to throw it away and get another car, which is, of course, going to cost you a lot of money. So what, what are the options? Let's say you drive through this brine bath. Does this mean you got to take it home and, uh, and, and decontaminate or clean the thing yourself? Yeah, the options are palliatives. If you care about your car, it's really, really, really important to run it through a high-pressure car wash um, as quickly as you can after it has been immersed in the salt. Uh, I, I think it's um, not sufficient to do it yourself in your driveway because you generally can only clean off the exterior surfaces of the car. And even if you got down on all fours and tried to spray it underneath the car with a garden hose, it's really not going to cut it. You want to go to one of those car washes where they have the, uh, the undercarriage wash that they can use to get rid of that stuff. And you want to do it quickly because once it gets into those nooks and crannies and settles in there, it's kind of like a cavity in your, in your tooth once it starts. It, there's nothing to do about it. It's just going to get worse. I'm guessing the average motorist probably doesn't think about these things, though, right? They they run through the car wash no. when, when when they think about it, but in the meantime, they're driving around in a like you know crusted up like a pretzel uh, without thinking yep. a second thought of it. 
Well, yeah, of course, they won't think about it until something falls off the car, until the, uh, the, the, the support for the radiator uh, Swiss cheeses away and all of a sudden their radiator falls out onto the road or their exhaust system falls out onto the road or uh, a suspension perch fails and all of a sudden the car is kind of cobbling down the road at a weird angle. And then they put it on the lift and the guy calls him in and says, hey, take a look at this. Uh, your frame's rotted out, and you, uh, you either are going to have to spend thousands of dollars getting the frame stitched back together or just give it up and buy another car. Well, one of the things you point out in your article is this is, uh, this is a great example of the contempt that, that government has for our property as well as for our mm-hmm. money. Sure. You know, it's, it's one thing if, the, if we've had a snowstorm and, they, you know, you've got to clear the roads. People need to be able to get around. That's reasonable. And you can make the cost-benefit argument, okay, you know, the road salt is going to have potentially a not-so-great effect on the vehicles, but we've got to clear the roads. With this brine, uh, I mean, in my own case, in Virginia here, in southwest Virginia, we haven't had a single significant snowfall yet this entire season. But they have salted down the roads at least, at least six to eight times by my count. Wow. Uh, so those six to eight times, people who, uh, people who had no problems getting around because there was no snow on the ground, nonetheless, uh, got their cars doused with this highly corrosive material, um, which is going to help their cars rust out a lot faster. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm channeling Greta Thunberg, but uh, tell me about the environmental impact that this, uh, this well, salt yeah, solution I mean, again, has. It's, it's such an obvious thing. It's just an obvious stare you in the face kind of a thing. This is salt brine. Now, if I were to get a tanker and have thousands of gallons of salt brine and start pouring it into the, uh, onto the ground, do you suppose I might have a problem with the local environmental hut-hut-hutters? Oh, absolutely. Sure, and legitimately, you know, this stuff gets into the ground. It can't be good for the environment. This is unlike the carbon dioxide thing. This is an objectively bad thing for the environment, and yet when the government does it, it's okay. You know, the worst pollution in the world is in these authoritarian countries where the government is strongest, like in China, for example. But it's okay because it's the government that does it, whereas, you know, you and I, if we cough and, and emit a little carbon dioxide, we have to be sent to the gas chambers. Well, I, I'm sad to see that uh, this is becoming a thing, but uh, I will definitely be keeping an eye for it in, in eye out for it in my own locale. Um, may, maybe it's just going to be an East Coast thing. We can hope, right? Uh, well, you know, these things, have, they, have it, they have a tendency to spread uh, like metatastic cancer. You know, the appeal of it from the point of view of the government is uh, that they can be preemptive and they can be seen as, as, as just doing a, a real heroic job to protect the public from the, the, the horrors of some snow on the ground. Um, but, of course, they also have lim- unlimited access to our money, so they can spend more on this, this pretreatment than they might spend on uh, the old-style conventional spray at road salt, uh, physical road salt. So I, 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 think, it, I think you're probably going to see it. All right. We're down to just a couple of minutes here before we uh, go to break. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Eric, I want to talk a little bit about your website. I want to direct people there and make sure that uh, they have a chance to see more about what you write about. Um, automotive-wise, Anything come across your uh, driveway here lately that uh, we should be uh, watching for your latest write-up? Well, I'm going to have something soon um, about the uh, <clears throat> the Subaru uh, Legacy sedan. You know, sans, sedans have kind of fallen out of favor generally in favor of crossover SUVs. Um, and if people are still interested in a sedan, I personally still like sedans. Uh, I'll have a review of that car up shortly. I've also got something about another crossover about the 2024 Escape. If people are interested in a small crossover SUV, they can read a little bit about that on the site, too. 
Okay, and and let's uh, let's give a shout out to uh, some of your sponsors because uh, you know people need to understand you do this for a living and anything that they do to support your sponsors uh, likewise will help to support you. Oh sure. Well, uh, I urge everybody who's interested in driving and and, and motorist rights to uh, visit the National Motorist Association. Uh, also encourage people um, to check out AMSOIL products, uh, lubricants, oil, uh, gear lube, transmission fluid, things like that, uh, all top-shelf stuff. And uh, also, if you're a road tripper and you uh, don't like radar traps, I encourage you to get a radar detector. And in my opinion, the best one is the Valentine 1. He's also one of our stalwart um, advertisers, uh, but a really good product. So I personally recommend it for that reason. Eric, great as always to have you on the program. I look forward to our chance to visit next week. Sounds great, Brian. Me too. Once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I want to remind you, too, uh, if you want to check out uh, links to the articles we talked about with Eric Peters in the first half of the set of the show, um, you can find those in the show notes, which I always post with the podcast. You can find that at lovingliberty.net. It's pretty easy to find. Just go down to the bottom right hand side of the page and check out the podcast archive. I always uh, I like to give lots of show notes so that you have access to the various articles or essays that I'm sharing with you. And you can in turn share those with friends or other people who might be interested. But uh, Eric has such a wealth of information on his website. I, you know, you'd be doing yourself a disservice not to check it out. So sometimes I hear people talk about how uh, we're too much of idealists, those of us on the side of freedom. Well, you know, in the real world, somebody's got to be a strong man. Someone has to be the authoritarian. Otherwise, none of this stuff will work. You ever heard anything like that? You ever ever get pushed back when you start talking about how great it is to be able to make more of your own decisions and to be in charge of your own life rather than depending on some tiny clique of of people to to do it for you? Well, that's... uh, It's not uncommon. And I saw this remarkable commentary from James L. Walpole. This was on his website, jameswalpole.com. Glimpses of Hidden America. And I want to share this with you and tell me if this sounds familiar. He says, I'm a pretty cynical guy when it comes to nation states. So it might be surprising to hear that I sort of love and I, I sort of love the vision of America that most of us learned in school. Because it's a place where people generally tell the truth, work hard, love their families, help each other, stand up for the weak, tolerate differences, resist tyrants, chase frontiers, do justice, and create wealth. Now, he says, if this seems like a dream, it is. This is hidden America. It's probably the America you've experienced. He says, actually, probably the America you've experienced hasn't worked out quite this way. But he says, part of the problem is we may be looking in the wrong place. Now, what he's getting at here is, he says, I don't believe the United States has very much to do with a good vision of America. The bureaucrats and the enforcers typically just control, manipulate, and harass. The politicians grandstand, and the legislation corrupts and impoverishes, and of course the corporate types join in. But he says there's a whole lot more to America than the government, the big corporations, or the culture wars. 
And he says, I catch little glimpses of this hidden America here and there. He says, I see it in people who volunteer their free time to make things better. Like when my friends and I showed up to help a forest cleaning crew this Saturday. They hardly asked any questions. We just grabbed saws and got to it. There was trust there and an openness to strangers that I doubt you'd find much elsewhere. He says, I see it in countless small businesses. There's a plumber I know who comes home every day to feed his horses alongside his wife and two young daughters. And he has the biggest grin and joy to spare for his kids, despite a hard job. James Walpole says, I see it in every old timer who passes on wisdom and in every young person who listens. It's there in the kids who leave the countryside for the big cities or leave the big cities for the countryside. It's the high fives at 5Ks, the fierce competition that ends with a handshake, and the company that makes electric scooters the new fad. (laughs) He says, in hidden America, cooperation is the norm, and people couldn't care less what your politics are. Character comes before party or belief. It's the America that could live without the American empire. It's the America that shares a common thread with the pioneers, the farmers, the inventors, the musicians, and all the decent people who came before us. He says, this is the America I suppose I will always love, even if it is a myth, nine times out of ten. And every now and then, he says, I get to meet it. Now, I'm sharing this with you because I think he has the right approach here. And and humor me on this, okay? Hear me out. I understand that it's very easy to be labeled as an idealist. Well, you know, of course, under ideal situations, this whole limited government and personal freedom and private property and everything. Sure, it'll work, but we don't live in, in perfect circumstances. And to a degree, they're right. We don't live in perfect circumstances. We have human failings. We have human frailty. We have human nature, which is you give someone a taste of authority, a little taste of authority, and if they like it, they're going to crave more of it. So that's the reality that we're dealing with. But it doesn't mean that the ideals, therefore, are useless. And I think what James Walpole is pointing to here is you will find what you're looking for. So even if uh, even if our expectations of, you know, America being that shining city on a hill where everybody does the right thing because it's the right thing to do, even if that doesn't get met every time we look around, every time we cast our eyes about, we don't see that. It doesn't mean that it's a faulty ideal or that it's uh, unrealistic to strive for that. Here's the strange thing about ideals. No matter how lofty my ideals are, no matter how low my ideals are, okay, if they're low-hanging fruit, well, that should be easy enough to reach. I'm still going to miss them from time to time. But it's worth having those ideals because if nothing else... Having stretched for, even if I've missed them, if, I, if I've made the grab for them and missed, having reached in that direction, having tried to grow in that direction, still helps me become a better person, helps me become more solid in my own character. And I think this is true for all of us. I don't think I'm, you know, an outlier on this. So if you look around... Despite all the things you're hearing about how America hates each other, 350 million people are at each other's throats, rah, 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 rah. Yeah, you will definitely find people who fit that description. But if you look a little bit closer, you will discover that there are an awful lot of good people who, for whom cooperation is the norm. For whom what your politics are doesn't really matter. 
They're willing to help you. They're willing to do their part to to make sure that your life isn't more difficult or, or more strenuous than it already is. I catch a glimpse of this every time that I travel. And I don't travel a ton, but I travel enough that when I get to the airport, that's where you're going to see a pretty good mix, a conglomeration of people from a whole bunch of different socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnicities, religious upbringings. I mean, it's it's a, it's a terrific melting place of people. Unfortunately, it's also a great place where germs are passed in the time of coronavirus. So not exactly a place I'd want to be hanging out a lot right now. But outside of the enforcers and the uh, bureaucrats and the people marching around in uniform and looking oh so important the average people that you meet and by the way there are actually there are actually some good people in positions of authority at the airport too but the people that you meet generally are kind to one another and and without regard they don't they don't size you up and ask well now wait a minute are you a uh, you a trump supporter before they sell you a bottle of water for 12 bucks not well, I'm Sorry, that was a that was a cheap shot. My point is, for the most part, people are decent and they are tolerant. And that's just because that that is the default setting. There's a lot of drama out there and there's a lot of, uh, you know, inflammatory stuff going on to try to convince us that, no, 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 we're really at each other's throats and we're just like a heartbeat away from blood in the streets. But I really believe that the people who represent that worldview are very much the minority. And I think that the vast majority of people most likely are good, decent, well-rounded people of good character. Which brings me to the idea here that, look, we, we often hear a lot of thinking about, well, let's, uh, let's make sure that we're dividing up into the right groups. Which group do you fit into? Are you the white, cisgendered, male, blah, blah, blah? What a, what a garbage waste of time. As to how to see people, if, if you absolutely must try to make a distinction and put people into one group or another, here's the only distinction that actually matters. Is a person decent or indecent? And the cool thing about this is this is totally independent of whatever skin color they may have, whatever religious background they may have. It's entirely dependent on their behavior, something that is objectively observable. What are their actions showing? By their actions, are they showing themselves to be a decent human being? Well, there you have it. Then that's the category that you can neatly put them into. If by their actions, they are showing themselves to be indecent. Well, you have that too. I know I'm rambling here, and so I'll get to the point. The point is simply this. As James Walpole points out, whether you think it's a myth nine times out of ten, there is a very decent version of America out there. And it's not its government and it's not its laws and it's not its people in uniform. And it's, it's, it's the ideals. It's the, the principles and the practices on which this country was founded, not just its government, the traditions, the mores, the ideas of rugged individualism, the ideas of self-sufficiency, the ideas of we will help our neighbors in times of need. Those are the kind of things that made America great and that keep America great, at least at some level, even if it's not the one that's getting the most optics, you know, from whatever's being reported on the news or whatever people are emoting about on social media. Now, by mentioning this, I don't know, maybe this is more for my benefit than anybody else's, but sometimes I need that reminder. 
There's so much bad news going on around us, it's easy to lose perspective. Well, hopefully this helps put things a little bit further back in focus. This is Loving Liberty. Stick around. We'll be back after this. And just like that, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Again, please hold your calls until the next hour. By the way, I have a special guest joining me. Ken Cromar will be uh, coming aboard to talk about the 30th anniversary of A More Perfect Union. It's a remarkable film, and if you haven't seen it, it really sheds some interesting insight into uh, the founding period, the, what the uh, founders were thinking, and uh, it's, I don't know. It's been restored, and there's going to be a special showing coming up. I want you to know that uh, you're invited to check that out. But uh, Ken Cromar will be my guest again coming up in the next hour. I want to share with you a commentary now from Lawrence M. Vance. And this is this is kind of piggybacking off we talk, what we talked about in the last segment. Is libertarianism a mental illness? Now, I'm going to give you this disclaimer here. When, when I talk about libertarianism, I identify as a small L libertarian. I really believe in the whole uh, non-aggression principle. And basically, if, if whatever a person's doing is peaceful, they ought to be left alone. I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb and, and no less of an authority on freedom than Leonard E. Reed would, uh, would agree with me on this. But it's funny how many people portray libertarianism as a mental illness, and it comes back to the whole, well, you're not living in the real world. And, and in particular, some people get really in, intense in, in trying to make that case. Lawrence Vance says, although I hadn't written anything about the government's war on drugs since December, he says, earlier this month, I received a brief note in my inbox with the subject line of, like libertinism a.k.a. liberalism, libertarianism is bordering on mental illness. The body of the email simply said, regarding the, the freedom to use drugs... It had been uh, apparently it had been writing about uh, that insanity for three decades. The note closed with the Jungian INTP, which refers to the Carl Jung uh, personality type of introverted, intuitive thinking and perceiving. Sorry, I didn't get Mr. Jung's name right the first time there. But basically, he says what my respondent was saying was that freedom to use drugs is insane and libertarianism is bordering on mental illness for espousing such freedom. No essays, articles, or books written over the last three decades about the insanity of drug freedom were mentioned. But he asks, is it libertarians who are insane for believing in drug freedom, or is it drug warriors who have the mental illness? Now, just to, to put it into perspective, he says, here's the libertarian position on the drug war. It's straightforward. The condensed version would be, there should be no laws at any level of government for any reason regarding the buying, selling, growing, processing, transporting, manufacturing, advertising, using, or possessing of any drug for any reason. The drug war should be ended immediately because it is not the proper role of government to prohibit, regulate, restrict, or otherwise control what a man desires to eat, drink, smoke, inject, absorb, snort, sniff, inhale, swallow, or otherwise ingest into his mouth, nose, veins, or lungs. End quote. Now I'm going to remind you that uh, with the exception of alcohol and the taxes attended on alcohol, that was the norm prior to 1914 in America. There were virtually no laws governing 
these various substances. Now, that put a lot of responsibility back on the person. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Lawrence Vance says this, of course, does not mean that libertarians think that drug use is moral, safe, beneficial or healthy. Nor does it mean that they recommend that anyone take drugs. And it also doesn't mean that libertarians are naive about the negative effects of drug abuse. Using drugs may cost you your money, your health, your mind, your job, your status, your reputation, your family and or your friends. In fact, using drugs may even kill you. But with drug freedom comes responsibility. Drug users are ultimately responsible for their own actions. So he says, no, drug freedom is not insanity. And libertarians who believe in drug freedom are not bordering on mental illness. Now, consider the following. Does it not border on mental illness to want the government to outlaw drugs, but not alcohol? Does it not border on mental illness to believe that drugs should be prohibited because they are immoral, but other immoral activities like committing adultery and fornication should not be a concern of government? Does it not border on mental illness to support a drug war with costs that greatly exceed any of its supposed benefits? Does it not border on mental illness to support the monstrous evil that is the drug war that has ruined more lives than drugs themselves? He asks, does it not border on mental illness to believe that drugs should be prohibited because they are self-destructive, but that self-destructive activities like having casual sex and habitually overeating are none of the government's business? Does it not border on mental illness to support a drug war that is a complete and utter failure? Does it not border on mental illness to support the federal drug war when there is no constitutional authority for it? Does it not border on mental illness to believe that drugs should be prohibited because they're dangerous, but that dangerous activities like skydiving or MMA fighting or bungee jumping or working as a roofer or logger should be permitted? Does it not border on mental illness to say that marijuana should be illegal, but that tobacco, which kills thousands every year directly and indirectly, should be legal? Does it not border on mental illness to not want the government to interfere with Americans' consumption habits except when it comes to the consumption of drugs? Does it not border on mental illness to want the government to ban marijuana, even though the government acknowledges that marijuana use has never killed anyone, but not to ban aspirin or other NSAID drugs which have killed thousands? Does it not border on mental illness to believe that drugs should be prohibited because they're addictive? but that addictive activities like playing video games and viewing pornography should not be the concern of government? Does it not border on mental illness to support something that is impossible to reconcile it with a limited government? Does it not border on mental illness to support something that is the cornerstone of a police state? Does it not border on mental illness to believe that drugs should be prohibited because they are unhealthy, but eating junk food and drinking beverages laden with high fructose corn syrup is none of the government's business? Does it not border on mental illness to support the government waging war on a plant? Lawrence Vance says, I think it is drug warriors who are out of their mind. I think that drug prohibition is insanity and drug warriors who believe in drug prohibition are bordering on mental illness. Now, I get it. He's taking a pretty hard stand here. But I don't think he's wrong. And I think that the, the contradictory positions that he's pointing out that, that people who are in favor of the war on drugs take are a very good point to illustrate that, look, you, uh, you won't get government involved in these areas, but you say, but it does have a moral mandate to do this. Now, the point here, again, is not to say that drugs are good and people should be taking more of them or finding excuses to, to use them. 
It's the idea that there are proper things for government to address, and there are things which are really out of government's purview, which doesn't mean that uh, things that cause problems are, are somehow, well, it's not a problem anymore. But we forget sometimes that there are other institutions that make up our society besides government. And when all of these institutions are actively operating within their sphere and, and, and utilizing their influence, you better believe they have great problem-solving capacities. Some of these other institutions include family. Tell me that there aren't problems that can't be solved at the family level. These also include things like community. How many problems can be solved at the community level? Academia, business, clergy, or church, which, by the way, is the way a lot of problems were solved once upon a time. Media. These are six different institutions that are not government, all of which cannot use force to accomplish whatever it is they're trying to accomplish. They have to use persuasion. And yet they are very effective when they are operating and they're not outsourcing everything to government as, you know, the final arbiter of how to fix every little problem that crops up. Government only knows how to use force to get its way. These other institutions I've mentioned don't have the option of forcing people to do their bidding. I'm not trying to convince you that, uh, you know, if you, or if you are a strong supporter of the war on some drugs, that, uh, you know, you should renounce that position right now. But I am asking you to consider Lawrence Vance's point here that there's a lot of inconsistency here. And sometimes we forget that vices are not the same thing as crimes. Vices, properly understood, according to Lysander Spooner, who I think gave the best explanation of this in an essay called Vices Are Not Crimes, are mistakes that people make in their search for happiness. Do you hear that? Mistakes. Meaning that they can have negative consequences. The guy who lives his life in the bottom of a bottle is making a mistake. It's a vice. The person who is addicted to pornography or the person who is, you know, promiscuously going out there and, you know, alley-catting around. These are vices. But the person who was primarily harmed by those actions is the person pursuing that vice. Crimes, on the other hand, are when someone sets out to harm another person deliberately. And that's a distinction that we should keep in mind, because that's where government does have a legitimate role in seeing that justice is done. At least according to Bastiat, that's the whole reason that we have laws. That's the whole reason we call government into existence, to see that justice reigns over all. Using government to combat vice... Well, it gives the appearance that something's being done, but it comes at a very considerable cost to our personal freedoms. And sometimes that cost is a little more than we should be paying. This is Loving Liberty. Stick around. Ken Cromar joins me next hour. <laughs> 